Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Erin Corcoran, Executive Director at the Kroc Institute and Associate Teaching Professor here at the Keough School of Global Affairs. On Wednesday, February 23rd, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a so-called military operation in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. What followed was a full-time invasion of Ukraine with explosion heard in the capital Kiev in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine and in the southern port city of Odessa. There is currently an armed battle underway for the control of Ukrainians' capital, Kyiv, as Ukrainians' outnumbered military continues to hold back invading Russian forces in multiple locations. Last Thursday, it was reported that Russian troops had gained control of the nuclear power plant Chernobyl. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has vowed that Ukraine will stand its ground, saying that the country has, quote, withstood and successfully repelled enemy attacks, end quote. More than half a million people have fled Ukraine since Russian's assault began Thursday, and there are queues at a number of border crossings. The EU is bracing to receive up to 4 million Ukrainians fleeing the conflict. In response to the Russian assault, the United States and Europe have levied strong sanctions against Russia. In a Friday briefing, White House Press Secretary Jen Paskey announced that President Joe Biden would be following the lead of the EU and UK in imposing personal sanctions on Russian President Vladimir Putin, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, and other members of the Russian national security team. Also, on Friday, NATO announced that it would deploy response troops throughout Eastern Europe for the first time in history. These events are changing rapidly, and while there are many analysts weighing in on the conflict and how it is developing, I am joined today by several Kroc Institute connected guests to take an in-depth look at the nuclear concerns within this conflict. Just to note that this situation is evolving rapidly, and we are recording this on Monday, February 28, 2002, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. So let me now introduce our guests. First, we have George Lopez, the Reverend Theodore M. Hesburgh, CSC Professor Emeritus at Peace Studies. Welcome, George. Thanks, Erin. Next, we have Jerry Powers, Director of Catholic Peacebuilding Studies and Coordinator of the Catholic Peacebuilding Network and its project on revitalizing Catholic engagement on nuclear disarmament here at the Kroc Institute. Thanks for being here, Jerry. It's good to be here, Erin. And finally, we have with us Monica Montgomery, a 2019 Notre Dame Peace Studies alum who is now working as a research analyst at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, a well-known DC-based nonprofit promoting policies to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons and to minimize the risk of war. Welcome, Monica. Thanks, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here, especially with um, former professors. So let's get started. George, I want to start with you. On Sunday, we heard the troubling news that President Putin was moving Russian nuclear forces into, quote, special combat readiness. Was the invasion of Ukraine destined to be a nuclear crisis all along? It's a tough question to begin with, Erin, but I would hope it wasn't destined this way. But I think an honest assessment is anytime a nuclear power invades another country, the prospect of the existential dimension that the conflict and particularly the more serious, the war fighting, the nuclear option exists. It seemed deep in the background, but Mr. Putin's recent statement really brings it up front to the practical. What does it mean to go on a defensive alert? Well, in his case, it seems to mean that 
he was going to put teeth in his earlier statement that those who would interfere in the venture of military action by Russia in Ukraine would face consequences they've never before expected or seen. I think this is being read by the West as a very practical statement of nuclear posturing and a waving of nuclear weapons in ways that we haven't seen since 1973 in terms of world conflict. And I do believe that whether it was destiny or not, we're now at that point where we have to take seriously the potential that Mr. Putin, maybe not the full Russian military establishment, but at least Mr. Putin believes that part of the attack strategy and attaining his goals and overthrowing the government of Ukraine is the use of the military weapon by threat or by action. Thanks, George. Jerry or Monica, did you want to weigh in on this question at all? Let me say a word. I think because Putin has defined this, unfortunately, in part is about Russia's security, and especially Russia's nuclear security, it's useful to at least understand the point of view. And to understand that, you have to understand NATO's nuclear policy. NATO calls itself a nuclear alliance because its nuclear umbrella covers all of its members, most of whom are non-nuclear states. And as a nuclear alliance, NATO shares about 100 U.S. nuclear weapons with five of its non-nuclear members and extends the nuclear umbrella to all members, including the three that border Russia and Belarus. So NATO expansion, by definition, expands what Russia considers a nuclear threat to the borders of Russia. In a speech in Berlin this past November, NATO Secretary General Jan Soltenberg emphasized the central importance of sharing nuclear weapons with NATO allies and noted that if Germany chose not to continue to permit nuclear weapons on its territory, quote, the alternative is that we easily end up with nuclear weapons in other countries in Europe, also to the east of Germany, unquote. Deploying nuclear weapons east of Germany is highly provocative language to Russia. Now, Belarus, a close ally of Russia and is aiding Russia in its invasion of Ukraine, gave up its nuclear weapons at the same time Ukraine did when it became independent. Yesterday, Belarus approved a referendum to adopt a new constitution that would end its non-nuclear status. And Belarusian President Lukashenko said, if you, the West, transfer nuclear weapons to Poland or Lithuania to our borders, then I will turn to Putin to return the nuclear weapons that I gave away without any conditions. So we're in a situation here, I think, where and the international community rightly, rightly opposes that move by Belarus. But we're in a situation here where, at least in the eyes of Belarus and Russia, we have a double standard. And it's a double standard that I think is, it underlies the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and unfortunately too much of the nuclear policies of the nuclear states. Yeah, and if I can just build on that and kind of summarize and, and talk about the risk of escalation, because of the role that nuclear weapons play in today's military doctrines, particularly in U.S., Russia, NATO, any conflict involving these states are going to have nuclear undertones. And our hope is that they remain undertones. I think that the comments that President Putin has made, both in his original speech of full of baseless claims and false pretexts for invasion, as well as this announcement on Sunday to shift the posture of Russian nuclear forces, shows a level of nuclear nuclear posturing that we have not seen thus far in conventional conflict and is extremely 
escalatory and provoking. I also think that it shows, it demonstrates the myth that much of us have, have been calling out for a, a while now, that nuclear te- deterrence is an instrument of peace and stability. Instead, this conflict is showing what many political scientists um, call the instability-stability paradox, that nuclear weapon states will actually use their nuclear arsenal as a shield to carry out conventional aggression or proxy wars, knowing that they can control who gets involved in the conflict because states like the United States know that by joining this conflict, it would immediately become very escalatory and risk nuclear war, and the United States is going to take every step to avoid that. That being said, we cannot understate the risk of nuclear war right now. It remains low, but the fact that it's not zero is incredibly concerning. Battle is currently directly only involving Russian and Ukrainian and possibly soon Belarus forces, as Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons or is not under a U.S. nuclear umbrella or any other nuclear arsenal, it will hopefully remain conventional. However, the threat to escalation and nuclear use is real and is concerning. This battle is being waged near the borders of NATO countries, and whether it be by accident, miscalculation, or, or some other really irrational aggression, This could bring nuclear powers, including NATO and the U.S., into conflict and leads us closer to the step of nuclear escalation. And I think that's why we've seen strong leadership from NATO and the United States talking about the need to avoid spilling over borders or the possibility of nuclear weapons um, becoming involved in this conflict. I want to just come back to you, Jerry. If you could maybe provide a little bit more of a sort of a historical context for those of listeners who aren't really familiar with the ways in which nuclear weapons have been a central part of the political conversation in the Ukraine. Specifically, could you talk with us about what first happened in the Cold War or after the Cold War in Ukraine and how that is now impacting today's events? Let me give you the historical background in brief. Uh, It's a complicated story, but I'll just give you the highlights. In December 1991, After 90% of Ukrainians voted for independence in a referendum, the Soviet Union was formally dissolved. At that time, Ukraine had the third largest nuclear stockpile in the world, only after Russia and the United States. In 1992, Ukraine, along with Belarus and Kazakhstan, the other two newly independent states with nuclear weapons on their territories, agreed to give up their nuclear weapons and join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as non-nuclear states. In the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, Russia, Ukraine, Great Britain, and the United States agreed that in return for Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons, none of those states would use force or threats of force against Ukraine, and all would respect its territorial sovereignty and integrity. They also agreed that if Ukraine was a victim of aggression, they would seek UN action Uh, UN Security Council action. Now, Russia violated this agreement when it annexed Crimea and began the war in eastern Ukraine in 2014. And now, of course, it's just torn it to shreds. And that's extremely unfortunate. So, Monica, could you respond to the current argument that some are making that Ukraine would not be facing invasion today if they had have kept their nuclear weapons? What would you say to this? Thanks, Sarah. And so this is a big question and it has serious implications, not only in the current moment, but overall on the nuclear nonproliferation regime. My answer is that Ukraine made the responsible and truly the only rational decision at that time to disarm, to denuclearize the Soviet nuclear weapons, not only for its own self-interest, but for collective security. 
if Ukraine had retained the Soviet nuclear weapons, if it had found out the, both the economic and the technological means to keep the nuclear weapons, which is still possibly very unlikely, it would have paid a steep price, both in terms of the economic and security aid and the diplomatic support that Western nations provided to Ukraine over the years. All that to say that to say that Ukraine could be the country that it is today, but with nuclear weapons is false. So it's unfair to talk about this conflict as if so Ukraine could be still possessing nuclear weapons. But it's also true that the invasion of Ukraine has done serious damage to the credibility of the nuclear nonproliferation regime. The 1994 Budapest Memorandum has been touted as an example of a treaty that can prevent a, a war like this or escalation like this. So the fact that Russia has not once but now twice violated it and nuclear weapons are playing a key role in this conflict is incredibly concerning. But at the end of the day, this would not be 2022 with the U.S. and NATO backing and other Western nations backing Ukraine against Russia if both states were to have nuclear weapons. I just want to shift a little bit here. Uh, George, could you kind of assess the current response from the U.S. and other international countries thus far in the context of what's going on right now? Sure, thanks. And what great answers from my colleagues to those earlier questions. The response clearly has been to maximize some of the most deep-reaching economic measures you can when you deploy sanctions against another country, whereas the usual mechanism is embargoing some trade, probably the key export of a country, and going after some levels of its assets held overseas. This particular collection of sanctions which really has been mobilized in a week, even though there was some planning for it ahead of time, really is unprecedented in a number of ways. The first and the most dramatic is that it imposes huge currency burdens and currency sanctions on the most widespread international banking arrangements of the Russians, and also then asks American and Western banks to cooperate with that, which they have in near unanimity. The second is the sanctioning of high-tech goods that the Russians rely on, particularly microchip imports from the United States and telecommunications equipment from the Europeans and others to really two or three months down the line impact a lot of the outputs and domestic goods that the Russians need for basic operations of telecommunications. There's another example of this that I think is the most telling, and the high degree of cooperation of not only European states, but other states that are willing to shut down air travel to Russia, in the European case, close down airspace, the ability to mobilize correspondent banks that have even tangential reach with some of the Russian banks, their account mechanisms being shut down. And as we've heard in, in Britain at a call today from some of the political figures in New York City, let's go after the apartments Let's go after the yachts. Let's go after the personal assets that are held by Russians because they always want to come and vacation here or they use the purchasing of real estate for money laundering. All of that stuff will now go down the pike of being asset freezes. That coordination led by Washington, but now co-led by a series of other states is important. I'd go back to, I think it's about three weeks ago when the new German leader came to Washington to talk about a potential response to what looked like the increased news and intelligence of an invasion, and asked by a reporter, 
would you for sure shut down the Nord Stream pipeline if there's an invasion of Ukraine? And he kind of waffled. What happened 17 hours after the invasion? The Germans were the first cooperative ally out of the gate, shutting down Nord Stream and deciding, no, our basic economic response is going to be the beginning of a series of economic unity responses that imposes costs on the Russian oligarchy, takes the basic means of building new weapons out of the hands of the military, and creates a bite into the uh, strength, the Russian resolve, maybe, that they haven't seen before. And just to add to that, speaking on the U.S. response, particularly to the nuclear elements of the crisis and, and the risk for escalation, it's my view that the, the response has been quite strong and good. I think that the Biden administration, the Department of Defense and national security leaders in the United States have been very clear about where the lines are in this conflict. The United States will not be military intervening in Ukraine, why we will support them with the sanctions that George has talked about and with economic and military aid. Under no circumstances will U.S. forces be in Ukraine. However, he has been clear, President Biden saying that if this were to spill over into NATO territory, that would invoke Article 5 and bring the United States into this conflict, which is a serious concern and risk of escalation that we're going to avoid. I also say that the United States has been very careful in responding to some of the nuclear rhetoric, particularly um, upon hearing that that Russian forces are being escalated to this new alert level. United States national security officials have said that there's no reason that we should change our own alert levels and calling the language extremely provocative um, and dangerous, adding to the risk of miscalculation and saying that they won't even indulge in engaging those conversations. I think that's the exact type of language that we need right now, and it needs to continue to avoid further escalation. Talking about what else can be done, I think that there are a number of lessons and policies that we've talked about for years that are evident as being helpful in this crisis. Instituting a policy of no first use of nuclear weapons, particularly clarifying that we would not use nuclear weapons in response to a cyber attack on uh, U.S. infrastructure is extremely critical in this moment. Keeping open lines of communication between Russia and the United States, the two nuclear superpowers in this event, even though things are obviously extremely hostile right now, is completely important. And also looking in future documents, particularly looking at the nuclear posture review that the Biden administration is currently formulating, a document that every administration undertakes to talk about what role our nuclear weapons play in our national security. Looking at this conflict and and saying what lessons can be learned In my view, the lesson is that nuclear weapons have only made this conflict more escalatory and more existential and talking about why we do not need to return tit for tat in an arms race with tactical nuclear weapons or developing more when our nuclear deterrent was not able to prevent this conventional conflict and this unstable place we're at right now in global politics. Thanks, George. And thanks, Monica. Monica, I wanted to sort of move beyond the news for Russia just momentarily to just talk a little bit about what we heard in the news on Sunday regarding North Korea. And that is that it fired at least one ballistic missile, which is the second such test since January 2022. Does it at all play into this overall sense of threat? And what efforts towards de-escalation are underway? And should those continue? Yeah, thanks, Erin. That's a good question. It reminds us that just because there's a conflict in one area doesn't mean everything is revolving around that. So yes, uh, North Korea tested a what is widely believed to be an intermediate intermediate range ballistic missile on Sunday. 
in the eighth test of the of the year. North Korea previously tested seven missiles in January alone, one of those also being a ballistic missile. While this testing, of course, is at not a great time in global politics, I don't believe that we should view this as a response to the current crisis in Ukraine. North Korean missile testing took a pause in February. A lot of people pointed to the Beijing Olympics and not wanting to test um, as to detract from China, who they are strong allies with. But North Korea has been on a testing regimen for a number of reasons. And largely, I think some of those are for the reasons that other countries test their ballistic missiles and missiles, and that is to actually make technological advancements. Also, uh, North Korea has gone through, as the rest of the world, some really difficult years in response to the pandemic. And Kim Jong-un is looking in other ways to exert his domestic stance, and he sees that through missile testing and building up the defenses. So I don't think that we can link this, this missile test to what's going into Ukraine, but it certainly doesn't help. Unfortunately, the the lines between resolving the North Korean nuclear crisis and, and building buttering tensions between the U.S. and North Korea are not looking too positive right now. The Biden administration has offered on many times to meet and negotiate with North Korea, but North Korea thus far has seemed to be uninterested. We can talk about whether or not the United States needs to take a new approach, which I would argue yes. But right now, unfortunately, I think North Korea is going to keep testing missiles and will hopefully not escalate any further, especially under the other global tensions we're facing. Great. Thank you for that. So, Jerry, I wanted to just sort of go back to our conversation generally around nuclear disarmament. How does arms control factor in here, especially given the abandonment of past arms controls treaties, including the anti-ballistic missile treaty between the U.S. and Russia that was in place until 2002 and the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty? Well, the good news is that since the end of the Cold War, U.S. and Russia have reduced their nuclear arsenals by about 85 percent. Uh, So that's got to be applauded. The bad news is that over the past decade, France, Britain, the United States, Russia, and China are all involved in the largest nuclear buildup since the early 1980s. And the United States, for its part, is spending an estimated $1.7 trillion on rebuilding all three legs of its nuclear triad. So we've moved into a new situation regarding nuclear weapons that looks a lot more like the pre-Cold War, like the Cold War, than than it should at this point. Meanwhile, as this nuclear buildup is taking place among all the nuclear states, key elements of the arms control regime have been abandoned. In 2002, the U.S. withdrew from the ABM Treaty, which is a pillar of the nuclear arms control regimen, and has since deployed missile defenses in Poland and Romania. Those are aimed at Iran, but Uh, They aren't perceived that way by Russia, for example. Development of missile defenses that are of limited effectiveness has done relatively little to make the United States safer, but has spurred other countries to develop new weapons technologies to circumvent them. In 2019, citing Russian violations, the U.S. withdrew from the INF Treaty, which was the first nuclear arms control accord to eliminate an entire class of weapons. Since 2002, the Open Skies Treaty has promoted transparency and confidence building by permitting countries to do reconnaissance missions over each other's territories. And again, citing Russian violations, the United States withdrew from the treaty in 2020 and Russia filed suit in 2021. And then finally, the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, which limited conventional forces 
significantly and, and rebalance them in ways that were you know, very helpful to everyone is no longer in effect. So the only remaining nuclear arms treaty between Russia and the United States is New START. New START limits strategic or long-range ballistic missiles, and that was renewed in 2021. But on Saturday, former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, currently deputy head of Russia's Security Council, implied that Russia might withdraw from New START as retaliation for the sanctions and the arming of Ukraine. So why does all this matter with respect to the larger arms control uh, situation? As Daryl Kimball of the Arms Control Association says, the, the result of the demise of these arms control agreements is that, quote, cooperation between the parties has eroded, concerns about military capabilities have grown, and the risk of miscalculation is higher, end quote. It's impossible to do in the current crisis, but the United States and Russia have to find a way to get back to the negotiating table and to revive the arms control regimen. And particularly, the United States and Russia should revive the INF Treaty and limit deployments in Central and Eastern Europe, negotiate an end to tactical nuclear weapons and the whole range of other measures. But arms control is an important backdrop. It's not going to be uh, something we can do right now in the middle of the crisis, but it's something that we ought to get to as soon as we can. Thank you, Jerry, particularly for that longer term perspective. George, I wanted to shift to talk about another unoften or underreported potential nuclear impact of this war, and that is the environmental impact. Can you talk with us about the potential consequences of the war waged in Chernobyl and the Donbass region in particular, given the large amounts of nuclear waste that are in that region? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. It is underreported, but no less serious than military casualties and military bombing in, in various areas of the country. We have a, a CROC research project that's been operating under Christina Hook and uh, Drew Marco Antonio, our two recent graduates who have looked at particularly the work of the Ministry of Ecology and Natural Resources of Ukraine that's really done an intensive study of the Donbas region uh, since the early 90s. And the data isn't very, very good. This is one of the key coal-producing regions of the country. And before the eight-year war that began there, the potential for hazardous, I guess we could say disaster, has always been present. There's more than 2,100 sites that have been examined for their degree of methane, radiation hazards, hydroelectric damages, and the like. And there's an interesting constellation of forces that their research has shown, and that is a remarkable deterioration in mine management given the conflict between the separatists and the Ukrainian government, uh, flooding of subsurface mines, and therefore surface water contamination to the point at which if you tested uh, 40 to 50 wells in the region, nearly 90% of them would have met below standard for quality war, water potable or non-potable arrangements. And so there's an ongoing crisis that's now accented by war and anything from new contamination for lack of mine management to unexploded ordinances that later would impact uh, the coal mines in the region all carry a certain kind of danger, but particularly for municipal water facilities throughout that whole region. The Chernobyl and nuclear reactor issue is, is much different, but no less serious. In fact, it's important, I think, to understand that this is the first major war we're seeing 
in a country with large scale nuclear facilities. There's a dynamic interaction in Ukraine between electricity and its six major nuclear power plants, which include 15 nuclear reactors. 50% of their electricity comes from nuclear power. And at the same time, you need nuclear electricity to run the sophisticated machinery that keep nuclear reactors safe. When I heard myself of the occupation of the Chernobyl site, a number of ideas went through my head. The first was, ah, this is a nefarious approach by Mr. Putin, who claimed just a week before that there was a danger of Ukraine producing its own nuclear weapons. Well, where would you get the potential nuclear material from that from? Well, you'd probably think you'd scoop it up from nuclear waste sites. So he's taking over Chernobyl simply to protect uh, the building of false Ukrainian nuclear weapons. Indeed, the occupation of this has probably stirred up its own degree of contamination. We don't think they've removed the cement and concrete guarding systems that are there, but there's so much contamination in the acres around that if you're brought in tanks and paratroopers and others, you know, as much as I disdain this invasion, I wonder what kind of water the Russian troops are drinking these days and what that means for their own safety. But this has larger implications because if the stalling of conventional war is anchoring the Russians and they go to full scale knocking out of an electric grid, then the safety systems on the nuclear reactors are likely to break down. If there's a continued damage to the diesel oil system that helps fuel some of these reactors. The reactors can go into reverse. There's a way in which we're dealing with the primary reactors that are 10 to 12 times stronger than Chernobyl was. And the breakdown of one of these systems and leakage uh, could cause catastrophe for not only the Ukrainian region, but all surrounding regions. So in general, research about war and its immediate impacts has discounted the environmental factor. Here, it's substantial, and it's one that you know flows right back to the, where's the international safeguards that we talked about on nuclear weapons? Where's the international safeguards for guaranteeing the security of nuclear reactors as well, is what this begs for. Well, thank you very much, George. Um, and so as we come to a close for this uh, podcast, I'd like to pose for each of you a final question. Nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament has been one of the founding foci of the peace studies field. And yet the attention to the, given to this topic has waned a bit in recent years, although threats, the threats still loom. How has the situation in Ukraine right now changed or shifted these conversations that we need to be having? And how do you think peace studies folks should be thinking about and or adapting their conversations given this current context? Monica, let's start with you. Thanks, Erin. Yeah, I think it's certainly true that this increased conversation and focus on nuclear weapons is a really important moment to talk about what this means for the nuclear disarmament and nonproliferation regime and how peace studies doctrines and thoughts can be involved in this conversation. The Ukraine crisis shows us that U.S.-NATO versus Russian conflict is not unthinkable. In fact, it's, it's a possible serious risk that we face right now. We're entering this new era of global tensions that many have been talking about for years now that we're, we're arming and, and gearing up for a new Cold War that could realistically spill over into a full-blown war and possibly even in using nuclear weapons. 
Uh, I think it shows uh, the myths of the post-Cold War peace that nuclear weapons are going to prevent further conflict, especially between great powers or nuclear powers. And I think that the tensions between the West versus the East and some of those same Cold War rhetoric and lines still remain. They were never resolved despite the 30 years that have passed. The question is what happens now? Do we use it as a moment to talk about the need for de-escalation, the need for new innovative thinking about new security structures in Europe that aren't so hostile and don't lead us towards inevitable conflict or and strengthening disarmament and non-proliferation efforts. All that to say, of course, this conflict is in the hands of Putin and Russia. It's an illegal invasion, and this was a step, obviously, ultimately way too far. But we have to use it as a moment when appropriate to critically reflect on how we got here. Instead, if we don't, I think we're going to continue to see, as many have already called on, for a new arms race, more military buildup, more spending on their military by NATO countries, by the United States, which is already at a higher level than the Cold War, and also increased reliance on nuclear weapons and our own security strategy, which, as long as they remain, will continue to pose a threat to humanity. I think it's critical that we remind everyone of one of the key lessons of the Cold War that both U.S. and Soviet and now Russian leaders commonly restate as recently as January 2022. A nuclear war cannot be fun and must not be fought. So taking that lesson, how do we learn from this conflict and not engage in a new cycle of escalation? Terrific. Thank you. Jerry, I welcome your closing uh, thoughts on this. Well, the focus right now, as Monica said, has to be on responding to Putin's immoral and illegal aggression and avoiding the risk of a wider war and even possible escalation into the use of nuclear weapons, however remote that possibly might now seem. When the time comes, however, for looking at the roots of the crisis and looking at alternative ways to deal with it, I think one issue that has to be addressed is the role of norms in international affairs. Putin's irresponsible threats to nuclear devastation mirrored Trump's irresponsible threats of fire and fury against North Korea. Putin's illegal and immoral claim that intervention is justified to prevent Ukraine from reconstituting its nuclear arsenal mirrors the Bush administration's illegal and immoral preventive war arguments for invading Iraq based on unsubstantiated allegations that Iraq was seeking nuclear weapons. Why do I bring this up? I'm not saying that there is a moral equivalence between Putin's desire to reconstitute as much of the Soviet empire as he can and U.S. policy toward Iraq and North Korea. And I'm certainly not suggesting that Russia may discard fundamental international norms because the U.S. did in Iraq. But precedent matters. It matters because international security cannot be based on a balance of power or might makes right. It has to be based on universal norms and the kind of security structures that protect all security, human security, collective security. Do as we say, not as we do, is not the basis for a just and peaceful international order. And just one final point. In a speech in Berlin that I mentioned, Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, said that European security required new capabilities, not new structures. Unfortunately, that has too often been the narrow perspective taken since the end of the Cold War. Rather than serious efforts to abandon Cold War structures and Cold War ways of thinking, too many simply adjusted 
and in the case of NATO, dramatically expanded those Cold War structures and ways of thinking. There were many other options. Cooperative security approaches, such as the Organization's Fear for Security and Cooperation in Europe, were strengthened, but they remain a poor cousin to the never-expanding NATO, and in recent years, NATO's greater reliance on nuclear weapons. So Europe needs a new security architecture that includes the whole of Europe, including Russia and Ukraine. Since it does not include all states and is aimed primarily at Russia, NATO has its place, but it can't be the main structure guaranteeing security in Europe. We need cooperative security in Europe. Thank you, Jerry, very much. And George, any final thoughts you'd like to make or concluding remarks? Well, I'd, I'd underscore each of my good colleagues' remarks in many ways. I also want to point out part of what's happening in a worldwide response, particularly for civil society in so many countries. Condemning this war and strengthening the development of a norm. Jerry talked about norms. That war is dysfunctional. It's impractical, it's illegal, and it's immoral in 21st century society. That doesn't mean it will disappear tomorrow, but the lesson to Mr. Putin and his shared leadership is that we're way beyond war. There are ways to resolve disputes and to litigate claims and to engage in deep-seated negotiations where your claims are heard because you're in dialogue with the other side. I think Jerry's point about new structures and institutions of dialogue is critical. I think it is the case that the West made fundamental errors way back in the 90s when we didn't understand this notion of cooperative security. If we can send signals that we're not capitulating to Russia's actions or validating its military response, but we can separate out the need for resolving those militarily from the adjudication of those claims and to build a new security structure in Europe that validates the independence of countries like Ukraine, validates the needs and aspirations of Russian people who don't support Putin's rule, who we see are at incredible risk to themselves are coming up by the thousands in the streets. I think listening to global civil society has always been an important dynamic in moving ahead with peace and we're seeing demonstrations of that that really demand our action and attention in new diplomatic, creative ways. And I hope that uh, peace action and peace research, peace education can further these, particularly the work of the Kroc Institute. Well, thank you um, to each and every one of you for joining us here today for this really, I think, important, timely conversation that also has some, I think, long-term thoughts and ideas about sort of how we should proceed even beyond this particular crisis. And this is an evolving situation and one that Kroc will continue to monitor and respond to as we are able. For the latest information on the Kroc Institute's research, teaching, and policy work related to this conflict, visit kroc.nd.edu slash Ukraine. Thanks all for listening here today. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.